0: Our scripture reading this morning is from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, specifically verses 1 to 11. We're returning to 1 Thessalonians. Uh, We're back to our study of this letter that Paul wrote to the church in Thessalonica. And at the beginning of chapter 5, we find ourselves right really in the heart of the main issue, the main question that the Thessalonians were asking, and that is what happens at the end of this life. It's the what's next question that everyone throughout history, throughout the world, that everyone Asks. so let's read this passage from first Thessalonians 5 if you're able to stand I would invite you to do that when I'm done I'm going to make the declaration that this is the word of the Lord and invite you to respond by saying thanks be to God this is first Thessalonians chapter 5 starting at verse 1 going through verse 11 the apostle Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit writes now concerning the times and the seasons brothers you have no need to have anything written to you please be seated <clears throat> now baseball season ended a few weeks ago um, and uh, at least according to the television ratings for the World Series uh, it ended with a with kind of a whimper rather than uh, than with a bang the ratings were, were pretty poor and the poor ratings uh, brought out some of the uh, familiar predictions of the impending death of baseball uh, and and of course along with that who is to blame for it for example Um, One newspaper columnist uh, once wrote, interest in baseball is dying, that's what the columnist wrote. Uh, And then he speculates, he goes on, uh, as to some of what uh, what some of the reasons might be. Uh, assigns some blame, he says, uh, maybe, is is it that the season is too long? Uh, Or is it, uh, or is this the beginning of the end of the national game? If so, he says, there is none to blame but the owners, the owners of the parks and the teams. Now here's another quote, Uh, This one is from a former player, manager, spent decades on the field, and then he became a broadcaster. He said, the modern game of baseball is weaker than at any time in my 22 years in the majors. He said the pitchers these days, he said they squawk too much about their sore arms and that players in general are a lot more temperamental, they're much more spoiled than when I played the game. A writer from the New York Daily News agrees with him. He says, baseball is dying in our high schools. It's losing ground in our colleges, it's dying on the lots throughout the country. Now does that sound familiar? If you follow baseball, you've probably read stuff like that, probably heard it. Now here's the interesting thing. That first quote that I read from the Oakland Tribune in 1905. Second two quotes are a bit more recent, they're both from 1939. Not isolated predictions, In fact, almost from the start of baseball, people have been predicting the end of baseball. Now someone might eventually be right. It may be that these times we're living in, they're different. The end may in fact be near. We may be living in the end times of baseball. But we should at least have the humility to recognize that we aren't the first generation to have thought that about baseball. Now, what's just an interesting curiosity about the, the end of baseball is a certainly much more important discussion and with far greater consequences when we're talking about the end of the world. And so those are the waters into which the Apostle Paul uh, steps here, and based on what we just read, I want to look at this passage from First Thessalonians chapter five, and I want to do it um, like this. I want to I want to look at these kind of three categories they are printed in your bulletin. Uh, let's talk about uh, as it relates to the end of the world and the day of the Lord. Let's talk about what we don't know. Uh, let's talk about what we do know, and then let's talk about what we do now. What we don't know, what we do know, and what we do now. Okay, so let's let's get started. Let's start with ignorance. What we don't know. And this is really summarized in verse 1. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, right? This is the when question, right? When is Jesus coming back? The times, Paul says. I don't need to write anything to you about the times and the seasons. There's nothing to say. Why not? Why can't we talk about the, uh, the, the times and the seasons, right? Why? Because we don't know. And Paul says to the to the Thessalonians you actually know that you don't know you're fully aware he says in verse 2. And we'll get to verse 2 more in a minute but but how do we know that we don't know? How do how are we fully aware that we don't know? Well how do we how are we fully aware about the times and the seasons? Well probably most importantly because Jesus said that we wouldn't know about the times and the seasons. In fact, he made it made it fairly clear back in the book of Acts chapter 1. That's where we read the account of jesus ascending into heaven after his death after his resurrection he ascends back into heaven but before he does he gives his followers a mission to proclaim the good news about him he gives them a mission and he also makes them a promise promise that he's that he's going to come back to fully bring his rule and his authority in all of its fullness he's going to be back and that's when in acts chapter 1 verse 6 several of his disciples come to him and say lord will you at that time restore the kingdom of Israel in other words at the time of of your return and Jesus says to them Acts 1 verse 7 it is not for you to know the times and the seasons that the father has fixed by his own authority and this wasn't some new teaching on his part isn't the, the first time he had said anything to them about this he had basically said this before he said but concerning that day and that hour the day and the hour of his return he said no one knows right so it should be pretty clear from Jesus himself that we don't know about the timing of the end of the world in his and his return we don't know exactly when it's going to happen and if you and, and so you can't predict the, f- the, the future you can't figure out some sort of secret formula in the bible to know when it's going to be which does not mean that Christians have not tried right? and it would be if it weren't outright if it weren't outright rebellious it would be somewhat comical right like parents looking straight into the eyes of their children right? you know when parents we, 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 finally, with fear and trembling, have finally reached the point in stage of life with their children where they're going to leave their children home alone by themselves, right? The conversation goes like this, right? Now listen very clearly, parent says to children, I'm leaving but I'll be back and while, while, while I'm gone this is what I want you to do and this is what I don't want you to do, got it? And little heads nod, and this is what I want you to do and not do, remember, right? What did we do? Got it? And little heads nod. Is that clear? Heads nod faster. Yes. And then you are not even to the end of the driveway before these very sincere little disciples are not doing what you told them not to do and doing what you told them not to do. And that's what Christians have done, almost since Jesus left the driveway. All right, it was happening in the first century. That's why Paul is writing this letter to the Thessalonians. But it's happened in almost every generation since. All right? A couple of examples. In the year 999. Christians everywhere were absolutely convinced because they knew they just knew that Jesus was going to return in the year 1000 but he didn't right? they also thought they had figured out the code in 1666 crack the code you take a thousand years based on the singular reference to a thousand years in Revelation 20 we'll come back to that later all right but you take that thousand years you combined it with 666 a reference to the mark of Satan in Revelation 13, and voila, you get it, 1666. Now, put on top of that, a lot of terrible things happening in England in 1666, right? Many Christians, English Christians, of course, assuming that England was the center of God's universe, right? They, plague, fire, drought, war, and the people said, this is it. It's gotta be it. This has to be the end. Jesus is coming this year. He didn't. New England, uh, the New England preacher, Puritan minister Cotton Mather, solid theologian in many other areas, was absolutely convinced that he had figured it out, that Jesus was returning to New England, of course, right, the new center of God's concern, right, and it was going to happen in 1697, and then when it didn't, it was going to happen in 1716, but then it didn't. Continues in our lifetime, right, some of you remember the Bible teacher uh, Harold Camping, he wrote this book first predicting the return of Jesus in September 1994 and then on May 21st 2011 starting at 6 p.m. in the Pacific time zone very specific the center of God's universe shifting obviously from London to New England to now California that's when he was going to come back 6 p.m. Pacific time on this specific day of course he didn't now you could spend hours reviewing the lists of similar predictions that have been made throughout history. But everyone could have been spared all the frustration if we would just imagine Jesus as the parent returning home to discover his children's disobedient. The parents, the parent who says, what was the last thing I told you before I left? It's not for you to know the times and the seasons that the father has fixed by his own authority. All right, that's what we don't know. But that doesn't mean that we don't know something. We know a lot actually about Jesus's return and the day of his return all right so that's point number two move on what we do know well what do we know well let me give you three things three sub bullets if you if you will right that we know about the day of Jesus's return what do we know well first we know that there will be a day right verse two Uh, before you get to thinking about how the day of the Lord will come stop and recognize that it's assumed that the day of the Lord will come For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come don't pass by that too quickly this is no secondary teaching here of the Christian Church this is a central doctrine the return of Jesus at the end of this age now of course it doesn't mean that 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 itself is without controversy the very idea of a day of the Lord at all when biblically understood makes many people in our world today very uncomfortable right and that's because the day of the Lord was a pretty common phrase in the Hebrew scriptures that referred to the day of God's wrath, the day of God's judgment, and the day of God's salvation. But 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 people get uncomfortable with that because a God of wrath? A God of judgment? A God who's gonna judge right from wrong, kind of settle accounts finally at the end of the day? Right? People people rebel against that kind of concept. Or actually, if you really think about it and press it, do they? I actually don't think that modern people in our age are as opposed to a day of justice and reckoning as, as we might originally think, right? Because all around us are calls for what? Justice, right? For people, for nations, to be held, for people to be held accountable for their actions, for nations to be held accountable for their actions. Now, where the difference comes, of course, the differences that are wide are about who's wrong, about who's right, about who should get justice, about what crimes, what sins, what, which ones should be judged, right? There's lots of disagreement about that. But everyone is actually much more united around the idea than we might think that there should be justice, that there should be perhaps an ultimate day of reckoning, which actually kind of leads you back to, we actually need this day of reckoning if there's so much disagreement about what's wrong and what's right about, about what should be judged and what shouldn't be, if it's so disagreed upon, it actually leads us back to we need that day of justice that day of reckoning to be a day of the lord because you need someone who's over it all to make the final call on all of these things now that's the first thing we know about the day of the lord that paul cites in verse 2 namely that there will be one right what can we know there will be a day of the lord there will be a return second thing we know um, is that some are going to be very surprised by it right, this is the comment in verse in verse 3 while people are saying there's peace and security then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape now the people the people who are saying this the people to whom um, he's referring are people who are not followers of Jesus they're, they're they're not Christians right see not knowing what we did what we said we didn't know a minute ago trying to predict the day and the hour the times and the seasons that doesn't mean that you get to think that it's never going to happen and these people that's what they were going to do right that's what they were doing they're going to be surprised when jesus returns because they're saying things to one another like that eh, don't worry you're fine you're good we're all good there's peace and security all right but obviously it's a false sense of peace and security a, a a peace and security that people actually shouldn't be shouldn't be trusting in and the things that they could have been trusting in instead when they kind of say oh we have peace and security what well, they're probably very similar things in broad categories to the things in which we would find peace and security right military political power religious identity but of course those things don't give us an ultimate sense of peace and security it's a false sense of of security and the day of the Lord Paul says will come on them like labor pains come upon a pregnant woman in other words you should know they were coming you just didn't know it was going to be today (laughs) that's the second thing we know all right, that some people, specifically those who aren't followers of Jesus, will be unpleasantly surprised by the day of Jesus's return. The third thing we know is that Christians should be ready. This is verses 4, 5, 6, and 7. Paul says, and he's talking to the Thessalonian Christians, it might surprise some, this is what he's saying, it might, it might surprise some, but you shouldn't be in the dark about this, this shouldn't shock you, All right, the day shouldn't, it, it, sh- it shouldn't come like a thief. So you say, hey, where did he come from? right you should expect it that's what he's saying to them see again not knowing the day not knowing the hour uh, not knowing the times and the seasons right if that's not the same as not being ready not being prepared you need to be ready because he is coming now in a minute we'll get to some of the practical things that Christians ought to be doing in our readiness but for now and under this heading of what we of what we do know right let's take a let, let's, let's take a second and summarize some of the controversy about 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 the return of jesus all right this is where we get into uh, some of the different christian views and i and i want to go back to what we looked at a couple of weeks ago if you were here when we were talking at the end of chapter four in first thessalonians right and and i had originally kind of toyed with okay should this be you know like a left on the desk thing you know sort of a a parenthesis that i just kind of record a video about and put on youtube later but no i said i think we need to talk about this on the record (laughs) if you will and kind of go through, because this is, these are areas of, 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 of significant disagreement and, and, and discussion in the, in the Christian world. I mean, this is where we get into some of the different Christian views. Uh, now, go back to what I said a couple weeks ago. If you weren't here, I borrowed a list uh, from Derek Thomas, um, who, um, I don't have his cool Welsh accent, but he said that at the end of chapter four, there's at least five things that we learn there. At the end of chapter four, about the return of jesus so kind of just put that with what we just talked about we know from chapter five right he said we know from the end of chapter four that the end the return of jesus is impending it's going to happen that's what we just kind of said second he said the return of jesus is going to be obvious it's not going to be a secret Uh, he said it's third it's going to be transformative i mean in other words it's not going to leave anyone unchanged everyone will be changed by the return of jesus fourth it's going to be personal I mean, Jesus himself is coming back, not some, like, you know, ambassador on his behalf. And fifth, it's going to be permanent, which means that the age that we're living in now, the temporary age, the age of the temporary, will be be over. Now, I repeat these things because none of these observations that we made in chapter four, the end of chapter four, are contradicted here by what we see in chapter five. Jesus is coming, he's coming himself, he's coming with certainty, and nothing when he comes will be left unchanged right? That's what unifies the end of chapter 4 and the beginning of chapter 5. Okay, so where's the controversy you say? Well, the controversy comes in the precise timeline and in the order of the events that are described at the end of chapter 4 and the beginning of chapter 5. And some people will almost attempt to put a division between the end of chapter four and the beginning of chapter five, right? Now people, and we're not talking about the times and the seasons here, right? We're not talking about predicting the precise day and the hour. That's not what I'm talking about here. I'm talking about the order of events, whenever they might happen. This is what people disagree about, right? How it's going to go down. Now the basic point of disagreement comes, if I even dare to try to simplify it this much, it comes around what's referred to in Revelation chapter 20 as the thousand years, the millennium, in other words, as, as the theologians have come to call it, right, this is the period of time during which God's people, it says in Revelation 20, will reign with Christ for a thousand years, and during this time, Satan is, uh, is restricted so that God's people won't be deceived, and after that, after the thousand years, the new heavens and the new earth will appear, the day of the Lord, the final judgment, right, and, and some would say that the calling of God's people that was talked about at the end of chapter 4, the removal of Christians from the earth, that that, that Paul talks about in 1 Thessalonians 4, that that happens before this millennium. And some would say that that calling of Christians to to be with the Lord, the removal of Christians from the world, happens after that millennium. Now, if you believe that Jesus comes to get his saints before the thousand years, Right? Then you have a thousand-year gap between the second coming, when Jesus comes, gets his people, and the final day of the Lord, a thousand years in between. Right? A, final, a thousand years in between uh, the, 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 the raising of God's people to be with him in the, in the heaven and the final judgment and the establishment of the new heavens and the new earth. Many Christians, right, particularly in broad American evangelicalism, hold this view. It's referred to as a pre-millennial view, before the thousand years. That's when God's people are called to be with him. Jesus comes back to take his people before the thousand years. And then after the thousand years comes the day of the Lord and the final judgment. That's that view. Now, many people who hold that view, maybe some of you, are really smart. Know your Bibles really, really well. And so we have to have a degree of humility when we engage with people around this kind of discussion. But I, and along with, I think it's fair to say, the majority of Christians up to just a couple hundred years ago, struggle to see how you get that view from the scripture without some highly speculative assumptions about things and events that just really aren't talked specifically about in the text. In other words, I don't think that you can drive a wedge between the second coming of Jesus and the final judgment of Jesus. To, to say it another way, I think you must say that 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, the return of the Lord and the day of the Lord are the same day, right? that they happen at the same time. Time, which means if you hold that view that you hold either a post-millennial view or somewhat misnamed I think an ah millennial view right both views would hold that the return of the Lord and the day of the Lord happen at the same time the difference between the two of them is whether you view that thousand years as literal that's what a post-millennialist would say it's an actual thousand years calendar years as we know them or you view that thousand years as symbolic that's what an amillennial would say. And there's significant differences between the two. But in both cases, Jesus doesn't come back, the dead aren't raised, and the final judgment doesn't occur until, ha- until after the millennium. Now, that's where, I'll, that's where I'll leave it because to go beyond the discussion is actually to go beyond 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and, and 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Now, I had to do that at least a little bit. And there's more. If you're on our email list, I sent a, a, a summary in the, the Friday... Uh, morning calvary converse uh, calvary uh, connections email um, that kind of summarized the views drew little charts and stuff so you can say if you're interested in getting that and you weren't on the list and then, then let me know afterward but i had to do it because it does this discussion actually does occupy a significant amount of bandwidth for christian scholars and in the popular media and all of that's going on with israel and stuff right now you see discussions that relate to this conversation in the mainstream media and that's, and that's why I, now either after going through this right your interest is peaked, you want to know more or your eyes have rolled back into your head and you've fallen asleep Paul says don't be asleep right you belong to the day wake up right? in either case whether you've fallen asleep or you're really excited about learning more in either case pull out the highlighter okay pull out the big highlighter and rub it really really hard over what we do know Jesus is coming back to bring perfect and final justice to the world which we desperately need and he's coming to usher in an eternal kingdom of perfection and we need to be ready that we know with certainty and all christians agree which leads us briefly to the to the third point the so what point what does, what does being ready look like right while we wait what do we do now right we did what we don't know what we do know and what we do now we'll just walk through verses 8 to 11 with me and, and we see right For what do we do now well first thing verse 8 be sober Paul's saying stay alert right don't shrink back from the world don't try to drug yourself by escaping the the struggle and the stress and you can do that with all kinds of things right be, beware of drugging yourself with chemicals or pornography or food or travel or endless amusement or or escaping into your own little kind of private world right as if as a Christian. You don't have the resources to engage in the struggle of this world because you do you do have the resources don't shrink back don't try to drug yourself to to numb yourself to the to the world you have the resources that's the bit about the breastplate and the helmet here right and that's the second thing what do we do while we wait what do we do now gear up or better given the construction of the verb remember that the christian is already geared up christian has what he needs you have a breastplate of faith and love you have a helmet of the hope of salvation that's what gives you your confidence as we wait in readiness for the lord to return right the fruit of christian character right the classic christian triad faith hope and love right which we see in other places right? first corinthians 13 those are the things that grow out of a christian and those are the things which god has equipped us clothed us with armed us with geared us up with faith hope and love the breastplate the helmet now and this comes how do we do this how do we actually kind of gear up well we remember the gospel that's the third thing we need to do and it's and it's it's actually and it's the most foundational we can't we, we, we can't ignore the fact that the day of the lord without the gospel is really something that we should fear rather than desire And i tried to make this point right to to you that everyone seems to want justice in some abstract sense everyone in the world around us i mean justice demanding justice right but for whom do we usually want justice for the other person right they should get justice Right? we need a final judge we need him to be perfect we need him to be powerful until we realize that the same law and the same high standards that we place on others actually would condemn us as well if we try to live up to the same high standards we put on everyone else and then we need some gospel right then we need we need some good news now what's the gospel well it tells us right? if, if anyone were to say to you hey what's the good news about being a christian right what do you say Well, verses 9 and 10 are pretty good answer the good news about being a Christian is that God has not destined us for wrath but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us so that whether we're awake or asleep we might live with him. Do you see what that means? Right? It means we can escape God's wrath. We can be saved. We can stand on the day of the Lord. We can stand on the day of judgment when he returns. How? How do we stand? Right? Through our physical strength, through our superior intelligence, through our hard work, Through our ethnic identity, through the color of our skin, through our political views. Is that how we stand? No. And you just need to think about it for two seconds that that's not good news if that's how someone is attempting to stand. Because you aren't strong enough, you aren't smart enough, you aren't hardworking enough. Because the good and the righteous ethnic group or race or political view, they just keep changing anyway and there's nothing to stand on there. No, the gospel, the good news, is that none of those things are how you obtain salvation the good news is that you obtain salvation paul says through the lord jesus christ all right great jesus saves us some are saved right but some right wait wait a second you say wait a minute that's not fair I mean, how can jesus ignore someone's guilt if they're guilty right they, they, that would be unjust someone has to pay and you're absolutely right someone does have to pay someone does have to pay in order for us to be able to stand in the day of the lord it's just It's just that, and this is what makes the gospel so gospel, makes the gospel so amazing, that someone who paid, who took the justice we deserve, is actually the judge who's returning. It's Jesus himself. Look at verse 10. Jesus, who died for us so that we might live with him. And that's what we have to do. Live with him. That's what we're called to do. We live with him. We get to live with him because he has already won the battle, because he has gone to war on our behalf, because he has suffered and died. We get to live with him. We get to enjoy the fruits of the victory. And what waiting does, as we wait for him to return, is remind us through our patience that the battle for victory is not our battle, it's not our, it's not our fight. It's been fought for us. On October 1st, 1940, A military regiment marched through the streets of New Westminster, a a, a section of the city of Vancouver, British British Columbia, Canada. Uh, The men were all lined up, three across, uh, as the column stretched for blocks going back through the streets as far as you could see. And as they marched, a newspaper photographer took what became a famous picture of a five-year-old boy named Warren Bernard, Little Warren broke free from his mother, ran out into the column of soldiers to his father, Jack. And with all the tenderness of a father, Jack shifted his rifle from his right hand where all the other soldiers had been carrying it to his left hand and held out his right hand to his son, Jack, running alongside. Just as the photographer snapped the picture. And the photo became famous, right? The caption was, wait for me, Daddy. And it ran in all the papers all across North America. It was printed in Life magazine. Right? They hung it in all the schoolrooms throughout the province of British Columbia in Canada. Wait for me, Daddy. An emotional caption. But of course, it actually was the other way around. The child was the one who would have to wait. The child can't accompany the father because the father was going off to war. Right? He isn't big enough for the task, isn't strong enough. We aren't either. Right? You can't win the victory against sin and against suffering. It must be done. It has been done by Jesus. And now what we have is this good news. (laughs) The news reports have now, on the other side of the war, brought news from the front line. And it happened 2,000 years ago. The enemy is defeated. It's come at great cost, but our victor, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who fought on our behalf while we waited at home, he's won. And he's coming back coming back look up that photo online the reunification of the little boy with his father he's coming back jesus he is not sure when but he's coming back to live with us and he's going to be with us again and when he does oh i can't wait for that day we will enjoy the fruits of victory eternal peace ultimate security enjoy it together forever let's pray Father, thank you for all that we don't know, and all the debates and discussions among us. What we do know is absolutely glorious, absolutely amazing, absolutely humbling. Lord, we pray that we would be humbled under our own need of grace to be able to stand in that final day, that day of judgment, that day of your return, and we pray, Lord, that we would wait eagerly for it, that we would anticipate it as followers of Christ, Lord, if those uh, among us, if there are those among us who don't know, don't have that confidence, aren't sure, Lord, may they rejoice in this day of waiting as well, this time. And Lord, may they see their awareness of these things, maybe even through this time today, as an encouragement to come to that Jesus in faith. Lord, we pray that you would be at work in each of our hearts, that we would understand the depths that you have gone to secure an eternity with us forever. We praise you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.